0: you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it, and you can go to um, Genesis 3 to start with. That's where we were last week, and we'll kind of pick up there and then um, move to some different parts of Scripture. We've been going through this just a brief four-week series, and we're in our third week thinking about God's good news, the gospel basics as it were. Um, and just four simple words. We started with God, who is God, understanding the core of his character that we need to know, that he's the creator, that he is good, and that he is just and righteous. Last week we talked about man or sin and thought about what sin is, that it's rebellion against God. We thought about who has sinned, that all have sinned. We thought about uh, what are the consequences of sin, that they are physical death and spiritual death, meaning we can't do what we need to do in relation to God, we are separated from him, and if we do not receive forgiveness of sins, we will be eternally condemned because of our sin. So we gave the bad news last week, and now we start to see the good news, the hope that we have in Christ. The plot of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, if you've ever seen the movies or read the books, centers around the, a ring of power that has to be destroyed. And what kind of makes the story interesting is that there's only one way for the ring to be destroyed. You, you think about something being destroyed and you say, "Well, I'll just throw it in this fire or I'll put it in the trash or, you know, we'll do some way to get rid of this thing." But the only way for it to be destroyed is for the ring to be thrown in Mount Doom. What a great name for a mountain, right? But it's got to be thrown in Mount Doom and Mount Doom lies in the heart of of the great enemy Sauron's land and you got to get there. You got to get the ring to Mount Doom so that it can be destroyed. If there was some other way for the ring to be destroyed, in some sense, there's no story, right? But because it has to get into that area, that's why there's a story, because there's, there's only one way for it to be destroyed. Last week, we, we thought about how the gospel is bad news before it's it's good news, that we have to understand the depth of our sin before we, are, we, we can understand our need for a Savior. And the situation is, is pretty bleak. Um, we're sinners and God is just and righteous. He must judge sin. And in our sin, because we're dead, there's nothing we can do to gain salvation. So it seems as if we're in a pretty bad spot. There's no way for us to be reconciled back to God, to deal with our sin without violating the justice of God. And that justice is, is part of God's throne. To remove God's justice, to let him just sweep sin under the rug, dethrones God. It takes him from his place of power. But there is there's there's one way. As we think about how these all things come together, we see that there's there's only one way. Jesus has come to announce that that he is the way, the truth and the life. And if we want to be made alive, there's no way to get to the Father except through him. Last week as we talked about sin, we looked at, at Genesis 3 and how sin entered into God's good world. So when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, death enters into into paradise, the the paradise that God had created, both physical and spiritual death. So now we're all born unable to live in obedience towards God as he intended. We're separated from our creator. We're objects of wrath, and we will remain that way for all eternity if there is no solution. But even in the darkness of Genesis 3, there's this beautiful light that shines in verse 15. As God is pronouncing judgment on Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's kind of a strange statement. And yet that is the the first light of the gospel that we see in Scripture. And it comes right after sin. So the promises of of an offspring is of a, a seed, a child who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. He's going to defeat death, the death that Satan had brought into the world. This child, this seed is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And so there's this theme that runs all through scripture, all through the Bible, the coming of this promised seed of the Messiah, the deliverer, the, the rescuer who would save us from death and from sin. And so this season of Advent, we're trying to capture some of that longing, that expectation, that deep desire for a deliverer. So Christmas is not simply about the coming of Jesus, but it's also about the longing for him to come. We want to capture that feeling of longing for a deliverer. After this mysterious statement in Genesis 3.15, the hope of the Messiah becomes clearer and clearer throughout Scripture. It starts most clearly with the promise made to Abraham. in in Genesis 12. So God says there that he's going to make Abraham's children number more than the sand on the seashore. He says he's going to give them the the land of, of Canaan. And then he says to Abraham that through him, through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a promise then that's repeated all throughout Genesis. It goes from Abraham to Isaac, and Isaac to Jacob, and so on. That there's someone coming. This seed is going to bless all nations, which is why it's so hard for the Israelites to understand why they're enslaved in Egypt at the beginning of Exodus. I thought we were going to be saved and going to be rescued. We see that God hears their prayers. He, they're calling out for a rescuer, for a deliverer, and God sends one in the person of Moses. Moses shows up and he delivers the people of Israel by God's hand And in doing that, they established the Passover feast, this feast that reminds God's people of how the angel of death would pass over their houses, those who obeyed the command to kill the spotless lamb and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their homes. The tenth plague and and the message of the Passover is that in the face of certain death, God will deliver us, that there is a way, that, that there's hope, even when things look darkest. Moses leads the people out of Egypt and he brings them God's law, and, and he was a deliverer, but he was not the deliverer. He wasn't the one, this promised seed. He dies before they even enter into the promised land. Joshua rises up. He takes over, and he leads Israel in great conquest. They go into the land, and they destroy so many of their enemies, but then he dies, and they fall into this cycle of sin and judgment followed by repentance and restoration that then leads into more sin. That's the story of the book of Judges. So Joshua was not the seed. None of the, the, the judges are the seed, though they, they point towards this coming one. The people think that if they can be like the nations, that will solve their problem. They can get a king. That's, he will be the, the deliverer. And so Saul is the obvious choice from a human perspective. But in fact, it was King David who proved to be the greatest king of all Israel. But even he failed, even he fell. And God shows he's not the seed, but rather he reaffirms his promise of this seed that's going to come and crush the servant, when he says that someone from David's line, a seed from David, will always reign on Israel's throne. David was not the seed, but the seed would come through David. The prophets then continue to speak about the coming Messiah, this deliverer, who would be how he would be born and, and how he would rule expectations were pretty high for this guy, right? God's people were praying for a deliverer, for this, this seed to come, someone to rescue them out of their, the rule of these oppressive nations and restore their former glory. Out of the silence of all those years then, they're, they're in exile, frustrated underneath Caesar's rule. God sends an angel to Zechariah and then to Mary, and then to Joseph, and then to some shepherds. And the message is that the promised one is coming, that the Deliverer will be here, and he will be here soon. I don't know about you guys, we count down the, the days till Christmas, Advent calendars, you, know, you, you begin that countdown. But we know when Christmas is going to come. It comes the same time every year, December 25th. But for people that were looking for the Messiah, they knew that he was coming, but they didn't know when. Imagine an Advent calendar where you never know when Advent's going to show up. You don't know when Christmas will be here. So Gabriel shows up and he he tells Mary, your baby is going to be the Messiah. He is the promised seed. And suddenly we know when the countdown will end. It's nine months from that moment. The Messiah will arrive in 40 weeks, essentially is what the angel says, give or take 40 weeks. So Mary's pregnancy is, in a sense, the first Advent calendar. It's the first time we know when the Messiah will arrive. But Jesus comes in such an unexpected way, doesn't he? He doesn't meet the expectations of those who are waiting for him. He doesn't conquer God's enemies the way we expect I don't know, the expectations for the Messiah. Then we have to ask, who, who is Jesus? So Jesus comes, he is the Messiah. How can this baby who becomes a man, how can he solve this problem? The problem is big, remember, about who God is and the fact that we have sinned and we are alienated from God. Who is Jesus that he can solve this problem? Let's, th- let's ask that question and answer it in four ways. Who is Jesus? When we understand who Jesus is and what he has done, then we will see how he can help spiritually dead rebels like you and me, how he can restore us. Who is Jesus? First of all, at the heart of Christmas and the heart of the gospel, he is fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Luke 1 is where we're going to go next. Feel free to turn there or I can just read it to you either way. But Luke 1, he is fully God and fully man. So when when Mary, who is a virgin, is told that she is going to have a baby, what's her first question? How? How how is this going to happen? And the angel Gabriel, Gabriel answers her in verse 35 of Luke chapter 1. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how. By the power of the Holy Spirit is how it's going to happen. Of course, the how of Jesus' birth, in fact, makes it clear who Jesus is. So after that explanation, what does Gabriel say? Therefore, because the way you're going to conceive this child is so unique and is done by God, therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. The virgin birth reveals some deep truths about the nature of Jesus, doesn't it? Was Jesus a human being? Yes, because Mary bore him. But was Jesus also the Son of God? Yes. Why? Because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the wonderful mystery of the Incarnation, isn't it? of God becoming man while still remaining God, Jesus was born just like you and me, just like little Isabella Grace was born this week. That's how Jesus was born. I was listening to Rich Mullins this morning. He sang these songs. He says, You was a baby like I was once. You was crying in the early morning. You was born in a stable, Lord. Reed Memorial is where I was born. (laughs) They wrapped you in swaddling cloths. Me, they dressed in baby blue. I just love the thought that Jesus was a, a baby. He cried. He, he nursed from his mother. He grew up. He, he learned to walk. He skinned his knees. He worked with his hands. He, he needed to eat. He got tired. He laughed. He, he cried. That's who Jesus was. He was a man. But he was God himself. John 1, verses 1 and 14, we read them earlier. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word, Jesus, was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 1:15 and 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews 1, the first three verses. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, Through whom also he created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. When you think about Jesus existing in these two natures, 100% man, 100% God, we see a key point. And it's this, that while Jesus was like you and me in his humanity, just like us, The fact that he was also God meant that he was not like you and me with regard to the sin nature and and, and our willful rebellion against God. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we can relate to God because we can relate to Jesus because he faced all the temptation we faced. But something was unique about him. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet... Without sin. Jesus was a man, but not like me, because I have sinned and I've rebelled against God. But Jesus was sinless, and his sinlessness is so important to to open the door for the hope that maybe, maybe he can save us. Jesus has no sin. I have to pay for my sin before God, but Jesus has no sin to pay for. Maybe, maybe Jesus could pay for my sin. He doesn't have to pay for his own. Maybe he can pay for mine. But but God doesn't just want us to pay for our sin. He also requires us to be holy and righteous before Him. We have to be perfect. Well, Jesus was perfect because He was sinless. Maybe maybe there's some way I can get in on the righteousness of Jesus and I could be saved. I could be made righteous and I could have my sin penalty paid for. And and God's throne that rests on His justice and His righteousness won't crumble. Maybe maybe Jesus. Because he's fully God and fully man, he can pull this off. Who is Jesus? He is a man born of Mary in the line of David, in the line of Abraham, in the line of Adam. And he's also the son of God, unstained by sin, filled with the fullness of God. Who is Jesus? He is fully God. He is fully man. Secondly, Jesus is the Messiah King. He's the Messiah King. Most of the prophecies of the Old Testament paint this picture of the Messiah as a, as a conquering king. Isaiah 9, 6-7, through 7, this is a great prophecy we read this time of year. It's in Handel's Messiah. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That's a big prophecy. And it doesn't sound at all like a carpenter growing up in backwoods Nazareth. It doesn't sound at all like that. It doesn't sound at, at all like, like someone who would be announced by some perpetually unshaven man in the desert that eats locusts and honey and dunks people in the Jordan River. That's, that's not the Messiah. It doesn't sound like a, a man whose closest friends were tax collectors and fishermen and who hung around with sinners and prostitutes so much that he was accused of being a drunk and a glutton. It doesn't sound like someone who would touch lepers and who would talk to Samaritan women at a well but Jesus is the Messiah King. He's just not what we expected. He comes and he calls people to turn from sin, to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. He says the kingdom of God is, is close. It's it's near. He comes bringing words of life. He comes bringing healing and resurrection. He calls people to fully invest in his kingdom by selling everything and following him. People were looking for a kingdom like David's kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom like, like the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus Stands before Pilate. You can see him there. He has blood on his face, maybe, a, maybe a, a fat lip induced by the fist of some Roman soldier. And what does he say to Pilate? My kingdom is not in this world. You have no idea what my kingdom is like, Pilate. There will be a day when Jesus does rule a physical kingdom, right? We look forward to that. We wait for the return of Christ, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. But for now, the kingdom of God is seen in him coming in so quietly And coming to reign in the hearts of men and women and to destroy sin and death. That's what his kingdom looks like. We need to remember that we are separated from God by our sin. So when Jesus comes and announces the kingdom and we find that we are rebels against him and his kingdom, we're fit for only judgment, then there's this irony. We want Jesus to come as the Messiah King. But if that's all he comes as, then we are destroyed before him because we are rebels against him. So if he comes to establish his kingdom and we are all rebels against him as king, then what's he going to do? He's going to wipe us out, and rightfully so. We need him to be the Messiah king, but we need him third to be the suffering savior. He is fully God, fully man. He is the Messiah king, and he is the suffering savior. Isaiah 9 is so true about who Jesus is, both now and in the age to come. But Isaiah 53 speaks more closely to what Jesus looked like when he came. Look at Isaiah 53. You can go right to Psalms and then head right if you don't know where Isaiah is at. Isaiah 53. We looked at this chapter fairly recently. Joshua led us through this. Isaiah 53. Let me read the first six verses. This is speaking of who Jesus is going to be. Jesus is the suffering Savior of Isaiah 53. The suffering of Jesus begins the moment he enters into the world, doesn't it? He enters the world and he's placed in a feeding trough. And then not many days later, Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. Why? Because he's going to be, they're, they're going to kill him. Herod wants to kill all the children. So they flee to Egypt. And as he begins his ministry, he comes into his hometown, announces who he is, and he's rejected. They try to kill him. That wasn't the only time that they tried to kill him. He had no place to lay his head, and he was threatened with death multiple times. And then when his hour finally comes, he does what he came to do. He lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus, fully God, fully man, sinless, perfect, rejected by the world as the true Messiah, is instead crucified as a criminal. But in his death, he takes our death. In his punishment he takes our punishment. I know I've got you turn on a lot, but go to Romans three because it's worth reading in its entirety. Romans three Paul has been establishing in the first part of Romans the sinfulness of all people. And in Romans three he helps us see what Christ has done for us. Romans three, beginning in verse twenty one through verse 26 listen to these amazing words but now the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, His patience, He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus, The cross is, is the place where the justice of God and the mercy of God come together. Where heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss the guilty world in love. This is where, where Exodus 34, 6 and 7 comes together. The, the goodness of God and the righteousness of God meet. Jesus becomes just and the justifier. He takes the sin of the world upon himself and dies in our place. God remains just. Every sin is paid for, but God remains merciful, and he pays for our sins. Our key verse this week is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a short one this time. It's the gospel in one sentence. For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we stand before God as a judge and we are declared guilty. Our sentence is death. There's no hope for bail. You can't get out on good behavior. And God the judge comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ and he says that the penalty is just and I will take it for you. I will take all your sin upon myself. He doesn't throw out the penalty and thereby throw out his, his justice. No, instead he takes our sin upon himself and he absorbs The wrath of God through His own death. God, who who is the, the creator of all things, who has authority over all the world, who is holy and just, must deal with sin. He has to deal with sin. But God... Who made men and women in his image is so good. He is merciful. He is, he is gracious. We have sinned. We are, we are dead in our sins. We are unable to do anything in and of ourselves. We are separated from God. We are on a road to eternal death. But God, Ephesians 2, 4 to 5 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Who is Jesus? How does he solve this problem? He does it because he is fully God. He is fully man. He is the Messiah King. He is the suffering Savior. And finally, he's the resurrected Lord. He's the resurrected Lord. When Paul wants to summarize God's good news, he does it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, he says, I deliver to you of as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture that he was buried, that he was raised on the third, third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. The resurrection of Jesus shows that, that God has accepted his sacrifice; that death has no power over Jesus. This is we've been going using this book, and as we go through this series, Greg Gilbert writes this: If Christ had remained dead, like any other savior or teacher or prophet, his death would have meant nothing more than yours or mine. Death's waves would have closed over him just as they do over every other human life. Every claim he made would have sunk into nothingness, and humanity would still be without hope of being saved from sin. But when breath entered his resurrected lungs again, when resurrection life electrified his glorified body, everything Jesus claimed was fully, finally, unquestionably, and irrevocably vindicated. Paul exults in Romans 8 over Jesus' resurrection and what it means for believers. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The resurrection also speaks of the hope that we have in Christ, that that we have a future, that if we are in him, we not only have victory over eternal spiritual death, but we will also be resurrected, we'll be given new bodies, and we'll live with Christ for all eternity. When we look at the, the problem of sin... And the reality of of the righteousness and the holiness of God and the fact that he must deal with sin. And we say, how are we going to be saved? The only answer is Jesus. The only answer is Christ. Only Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, the Messiah King that is promised, the suffering servant that is promised, and the resurrected Lord. He's the only hope that we have. There is no other way. Christ is the answer. Now, we've been saying, you know, maybe you're talking to friends about what the good news of the gospel is. You may not want to answer the question in those terms necessarily. I don't know. Depends on who you're talking to. It may be simple just to say, when you get to this, you know, we talk about who God is and what sin is. And you say, you know, Christ is the answer because of who he is and because of what he has done. He is the sinless son of God who became sin, taking our sin upon himself and dying to pay the penalty do to us he comes to bring together that verse we looked at in exodus 34 he comes to bring together the goodness of god and the justice of god and he does it through his cross we're going to see next week that the response then is repentance and faith that we turn from our sin and we trust in what christ has done not good works or church attendance or a certain number of prayers that we pray, we'd rather turn from sin, we trust in Christ. I'd invite you, if you've never seen the Gospel in this way, and you want to turn from sin, you want to know the gift of Jesus, then I would invite you to talk to someone today to know the beauty of the Gospel. And for those of us who are in Christ, this may seem like old hat, but isn't this the beauty of what we're celebrating at Christmas, that this is why Jesus came, and this is why He had to be Made 100% God and 100% man. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of, of Christmas. I, I want to read my favorite quote on the incarnation from this book by J.F. Packer, Knowing God. Uh, it's a little bit longer quote, so I know we're at the end here, but maybe just lean in and listen to this. And when I'm done with this, I, I will pray. Um, it's, it's a little bit long, like I said, but I, I promise it's it's worth it. I read it every Christmas. <laughs> writes this at the beginning of his chapter called God Incarnate. It is no wonder that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe, for the realities with which it deals pass our understanding. But it is sad that so many make faith harder than it need be by finding difficulties in the wrong places. Take the atonement, for instance. Many feel difficulty here. How, they ask, can we believe that the death of Jesus of Nazareth, one man expiring on a Roman gibbet, put away, the whole, put away the, a world's sins? How can that death have any bearing on God's forgiveness of our sins today? Or take the resurrection, which seems to many a stumbling block. How, they ask, can we believe that Jesus rose physically from the dead? Granted, it is, it is hard to deny that the tomb was empty, but surely the difficulty of believing that Jesus emerged from it into unending bodily life is even greater. Is not any form of the theory of temporary resuscitation after a faint or the stealing of the body easier to credit than the Christian doctrine of the resurrection? Or again, take the virgin birth, which has been widely denied among Protestants in this century. How, people ask, can one possibly believe in such a biological anomaly? Or take the gospel miracles. Many find a source of difficulty here. Granted, they say that Jesus healed. It's hard on the evidence to doubt that he did. And in any case, history has known other healers. How can one believe that he walked on the water or fed the 5,000 or raised the dead? Stories like that are surely quite incredible. With these and similar problems, many minds on the fringes of faith are deeply perplexed today. But in fact, the real difficulty The supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie here at all. It lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny. The second representative head of the race and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that jesus of nazareth was a truly and fully was as truly and fully divine as he was human here are two mysteries for the price of one the plurality of persons within the unity of god the, the trinity and the union of godhead and manhood in the person of christ it is here In the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. This is the real stumbling block of Christianity. It is here that Jews, Muslims, Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and many of those who feel the difficulties concerning the virgin birth, the miracles, the atonement, and the resurrection have come to grief. It is from misbelief or at least inadequate belief, about the incarnation the difficulties at other points in the gospel usually spring. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, these other difficulties dissolve. If Jesus had been no more than a very remarkable godly man, the difficulties in believing what the New Testament tells us about his life and work would be truly mountainous. But if Jesus was the same person as the eternal word, the Father's agent in creation through whom all through through whom also he made the worlds. It is no wonder if fresh acts of creative power marked his coming into this world and his life in it and his exit from it. It is not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead. If he was truly God the Son, it is much more startling that he should die than that he should rise again. 'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies," wrote Wesley. "'But there is no comparable mystery in the immortal's resurrection." And if the immortal Son of God did, not really, did really submit to taste death, it is not strange that such a death should have saving significance for a doomed race. Once we grant that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. It is all of a piece and hangs together completely. The Incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. Let's pray together. Well, we understand the incarnation and we don't understand it at all. Thank you for revealing this truth to us and let us press into it more to know who Jesus is. What we know is that you were born to die, that you had to be human if for no other reason than so that you could die For our sins. Jesus, you are the answer. You're the key that unlocks the gospel mystery. What other hope do we have but Christ, fully God, fully man, the Messiah King, the suffering Savior, the resurrected Lord? We worship you this morning, Jesus. The hopes and fears of all the years meet in you. Let us worship you well in these coming days and for the rest of our lives. Fare it all in Christ's name. Amen.